Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, a professor at Grove City College, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Todd Pruitt, PCA pastor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Amy Bird, empowering women since, what, 1962, something like that? <laughs> hey, I'm not that old. <laughs> Well, today we have a special guest. It's a real pleasure for me to introduce, actually, a former colleague, uh, somebody that I, I worked uh, with and alongside at Westminster for some years. Uh, his name is Pierce Taylor Hibbs, and he currently serves as the Associate Director of the Theological English Department at Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. Uh, but it's not his connection with the seminary that we're interested in today, so much as uh, a new book he's published entitled Finding God in in the ordinary. Great to have you with us, Piers. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Great. wonder if you could start by giving us uh, a little summary of your book or tell us uh, what motivated you to write it. Sure. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was actually, the idea for the book came from an NPR interview that I heard on my way home from, from work one day. Um, they were interviewing a, the Scandinavian writer, uh, Carl Ove Knausgaard. And he had just written a uh, first volume in a series of books that were basically reflections on uh, common objects that he saw in his life. And he would kind of work through a description and, and ended up giving each of these objects a kind of sanctity or, or larger significance. And I really liked that. And I thought, um, you know, it's concrete. People love, you know, the concrete, um, uh, concrete writing like that. But what if a Christian were writing this book um, and you had all these common experiences and objects in your life. And uh, what difference would my faith make to what I would see in those things? Um, so I started to, um, to write a you know, series of, of essays that were all along that simple idea and um, found it to be actually a lot of fun to write, you know, for, for I've written you know, theology and things before, but this was actually, um, just kind of having fun with the essay genre um, and, and not knowing in, in many of them where I was going to end up. I just kind of was exploring. And, um, and so that's, that's where the book has come from. I think it's, it's about um, 15 reflections now. And I think that the, the misconception that some people can have is that this is a collection of, of 15 separated essays, um, but they're, they're meant to actually be unified. Um, on this idea that, um, you know, God has spoken the world into existence. Um, he reveals himself everywhere, you know, in light of Romans 1 and um, passages like Psalm 19, 1 through 4. And so if God reveals himself everywhere, I should be able to find him everywhere uh, if I am looking through the lens of Scripture. Um, so that was that's the kind of uh, basic point of the book is... Uh, you have all these opportunities at your fingertips every day to see God reflected in the world around you. Most of the time, we're just too busy or too distracted uh, to notice it. And the payoff I found in, in doing this was a 
a kind of heightened awareness of God's presence. Um, and that was really invaluable to me um, in, in light of, uh, you know, other spiritual circumstances. So that's the, the central idea of the book. It's, it's very concrete, um, you know, playful and at times and, and um, had a lot of fun writing it. And I'm, I've had a good response to it from people, which has been helpful. I'm actually uh, gathering thoughts for a second volume because it was so much fun to, to work on this one. Yeah, you could definitely do that. I mean, it's such a delightful book to read. And one of the things that I kept thinking while I was reading it, and I mean, just a little book. I mean, it's under 75 pages, I think. Mm. It's great to use for devotions in the morning. Um, was just the, I mean, did you, when you were writing this, the theme of going through my head was that we have completely lost our sense of awe and wonder yeah. of God yeah. and who he is and, and yeah, his, his presence behind things. And so I was wondering, you know, it's just be, is this just because we've grown up and we have all these responsibilities as adults or, you know, does social media and our whole technology world today play into that? Um, yeah. Because you do really combine this sense of awe and wonder um, in ordinary things, I mean, you go from like something completely random, like a coffee cup, to something very immense, uh, the universe, mm -hmm. to something very personal, being named by God. Mm -hmm. um, I love it because your theology in it is so mature, even well, though yeah. you have this childlike sense of wonder. So, I mean, is, is that part of what made you want to write the book? Is yeah, I think, uh, you know, we have, we have three kids now, you know, a uh, five-year-old, three-year-old, and a seven-month-old. Mm. Since we've started a family, I think I've repeatedly seen that I'm I'm still a little kid. <laughs> um, and and I do I do really love and 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 part of it I think is my has been cultivated by a love of, of reading poetry. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've read poetry since my undergrad and and you know romantic literature, and and now I read contemporary poetry as well. So I just, I feel like contemporary poetry especially um, kind of cultivates this sense of, of sanctity or, or sacredness in the ordinary. And it's mm -hmm. very concrete. Uh, and, I, and I really love that. So I think that was part of um, what gave me the push because I, I, I have a, a kind of creative bent. And I thought, could definitely well, tell. You know, I, thought, right. I really want to, you know, be able to exercise this. And I haven't been able to uh, many places yet. So so this was an attempt to do that. I think in regards to why we don't view the world with that sense of awe and wonder, uh, there's probably a lot of different reasons that people could give. And, and I don't have a, you know, kind of a research perspective, but I do think in the introduction, I mentioned we, we have a tendency to kind of view the world as, as cold and impersonal. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like we, we are people, you know, made in God's image. And so we're, we're richly personal. But the environment that we live in is kind of neutral. You know, it's, it's just here. Um, and I, you know, over the years, I think um, I've just, you know, do, in, the, in the reading that I've done in Reformed Theology, I keep hearing theologians talk about the richly personal nature of, of the atmosphere and reality. And, and because it was spoken into being and maintained by a three-person God who is with his people. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, I've had this assumption, you know, probably for for at least half of my life, that um, the world is just here, um, and and there there are people in it, but the world itself does not reflect anything personal. 
And I think that that thought is, it's very quiet, but it's very poisonous. And it starts to affect um, the rest of your, your spiritual development, which I think explains, um, you know, other spiritual issues that people are having in our, in our day, you know, senses of loneliness and anxiety and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's part of where it's come from. At least I've noticed that in my own life. I, I have a unchecked assumption that I, I don't really know where I picked up that is, uh, that the world is cold and personal. And I think eventually I just realized this is really a deep seated assumption that's false, you know, according to scripture. And I, I have to start training myself to see the world differently. And I think that's what it is. It's a, it's almost like a retraining. It, I wrote that down in my notes. This is like a training exercise mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in how we it look sounds at the like world. Almost, I'm thought, sorry, but it sounds like almost it kind okay. of, a, we, we, we can be in danger of being kind of in a, at least in a practical sense, uh, pra- practical deists. Uh, um, God has wound the yes. whole thing up. And, and we forget, for instance, what, what we're told about mm-hmm. Christ's upholding everything, for instance, in Colossians chapter one, that there's this active, sustaining, upholding right. power among everything, every moment of the day. It's interesting you say that, Todd, because it reminds me of Charles, the sort of thesis that you put forward. And I think with, with some force and, and with some uh, evidence behind it that, that people like Charles Taylor and Carlos Ira have made that, that the Reformation kind of secularizes the world hmm. and, and detaches the world from the supernatural hmm. in a way that, that you don't find in, in the Middle Ages. And I think there's some evidence uh, that that's the case. Uh, but I wonder with Pierce, do you, do you find the precedents that, that you use for your book or, or the inspirations, the Christian inspirations, do you find many Protestant precedents for what you're doing or are you trying to, to Protestantize what is, is something of a Catholic Monopoly. That's what I was going to ask as well. Yeah, yeah, because we, we, we see a lot of that yeah. in, in Roman Catholic mysticism. Yeah. Um, but but what's you know what are what in in terms of of your thinking how do you see um, uh, you know capturing this from a from a Protestant particularly a Reformed Protestant um, perspective? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, you know I have read um, certainly read you know writers in the Catholic tradition who do the, mm-hmm. do this very very well. Um, and, and would have had an influence on me uh, doing that. I think that, you know, I, I had all of my theological training at Westminster and, uh, you know, there are a few kind of snippets uh, of, of theological wisdom that, that kind of find a home in your, in your mind and they never really leave. Uh, and some of them were things, you know, there was a quote from, from Van Til, Cornelius Van Til that said that the world is shot through mm-hmm. with personality and I remember thinking, that's not the way that I see the world, um, typically. And I remember reading things from, um, you know, from John Frame and Vern Poitras about this, this personalistic nature of, of the world. And um, so I think, you know, I think in probably, I would assume at least, I'm not as well read in, in terms of, um, you know, Catholic writers, but I would assume on both sides, you know, Protestant and Catholic, there is a theological awareness that the world is richly personal. Um, but I don't know how much that's been carried out and, and kind of implemented um, on the worldview level in, in, you know, reformed theology. I think there's, there, there were some, you know, a few books that were written on the topic when I was you know, researching it, but um, not much, there was not much. 
So, yeah, I think, um, I think it's certainly an area that has been fun to, to read widely in uh, and get, mm-hmm. you know, various perspectives mm-hmm. from different traditions. But um, yeah, I think it's, I think the, the reason why so many, you know, um, different sections of, of Christianity can find it as I, I think it is right. patently biblical. So you can't, you know, you can't miss it, um, so to speak, but then, you know, how much you focus on it and how you roll it out in, uh, in an actual mm-hmm. you know, discourse. And, is, and you would think uh, that, that reformed believers would, would have a good um, vocabulary, uh, so to speak, in terms of this, because uh, of, our, of our doctrine of providence. And, and God's upholding mm-hmm. daily and moment by moment, everything. I mean, we, you know, I've, I've, I've preached, you know, every, every electron that revolves around every neutron and in, in every atom, you know, is, is mm-hmm. held together by Christ. And, mm-hmm. and you would hope that that, that that theology would generate a very warm and dynamic um, yeah. uh, sense of, of, yeah. of devotion and awe and, and doxology. That's right. Now I do think that the, you know, the, I, the sense that I got for wh- why might some, you know, reformed theologians be shying away from writing about this? I think there are two dangers that people writing about it in the secular realm don't have to deal with. Uh, and that is um, the kind of joint uh, danger of pantheism mm. and panentheism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's very easy, I think, especially when you're caught up in uh, kind of poetic rumination to think, Oh yeah, God is right. is you know in this tree right here. Um, uh, it, so it's I think for that reason there, there, there might be people that just didn't yeah. feel quite comfortable because you do have mm-hmm. to kind of toe the line of saying God is revealed you know through these things, but right. God is not in these things. Um, and and that's a problem that I don't think um, you know certain certain other brands of, of theology outside the Reformed tradition right. might not about as much and certainly in the secular mm-hmm. world they wouldn't even you know yeah. have a second and, thought and about it so i'd like to actually read a paragraph uh, that kind of explains that well i think from your book and amy could, um, you, could you make it a dramatic it, reading please with an english accent okay. no just gonna read it like a normal person are you ready do not mistake the sunlight for sunlight or the trees for trees do not mistake wind for wind or sound for sound Do not mistake the ordinary for the ordinary. In this world, there is no such thing as the ordinary. God is present here. Everywhere we look are testaments to divine presence. God is the light behind the light, the one who burns and shines in self-communion. He is the wind behind the wind, the one who moves the world. He is the sound behind the sound, the one who speaks from eternity past. Our world is an animated echo of the Trinity. Everywhere is Father, Son, and Spirit. That is no ordinary world. I mean, I think that really captures not only the theme of what you're saying in the book, um, but also is, is precisely showing how God is present in these things and how you know, you're not moving into some sort of mm-hmm. pantheism or, or Roman Catholic yeah. mysticism or something like that. Um, yeah. And it also really sums up the fact, another point I wanted to make that... Um, this book is very Trinitarian. Well, that's what I was going to ask about, Amy. Uh, and, and even that quote you read, uh, I, I've been thinking mm-hmm. during this is how, is how, how central and how key is, is, a, is a uniquely and robustly Trinitarian theology to, mm-hmm. to what you're writing about here. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, you know, I did my uh, THM thesis on Kenneth Pike, who was a Christian linguist. 
And it, it, the thesis was about how the structure of language and human behavior reflects the Trinity. And uh, after I wrote that, um, and the, P, the PNR published that in their dissertation, curated dissertation series, but I wrote um, a more popular level book um, that also came out with Wittgenstock a few weeks ago uh, called The Speaking Trinity and His Worded World. Um, and it's a very similar idea. So I think you know, that, that sense that there's a kind of Trinitarian mm-hmm. structure mm-hmm. Um, to the way that things are that you can perceive from, you know, a, a biblical perspective. And I think that's the lens that I had to keep putting in front. Like you can't see these things mm-hmm. apart from scripture. Right. You, you know, these are, these are not right. openly available um, to believers. But if you, you know, as a Christian, if you've been, um, you know, con- convinced of the truth of scripture, you can look through that lens and see all of these structures everywhere. And I think I've been I've probably been most profoundly mm-hmm. influenced by Vern Poitras in that sense. Uh, in relation to language, but then because I think language is kind of central to reality, it affects everything else. So, um, so yeah, I think that's part of it. The other thing I was, I was thinking of with when Amy, when you read that quote, um, you know, when they interviewed this, uh, the Scandinavian author on NPR, um, the, the interviewer said, Hey, you know, do you see the world, you know, as this kind of deeply sacred place uh, now that you've written you know, books like this, that you can take these objects and just, you know, you just see the world in a kind of super natural way. And I thought it was interesting, his response, because right away, without mm. skipping a beat, he said, no, no, not at all. He said, I, it's all about the process for me. I have to keep staying in the moment. And I thought, you know, the things that I wrote in this book shaped, you know, the way that I see parts of the world, you know, so I don't look, since I've written the, you know, the book on shadows, for example, I don't, tend to look at shadows in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in large part, I feel like it's a constant retraining. Like I have to be in, in the moment of re-envisioning the world in this way. And, and I hope that, uh, you know, to a certain point down the road, it will become default. But for right now, I think it is, you know, it's very easy to, um, you know, get these glimpses, you know, the glimpses of, uh, of biblical truth and I think that when I say things, you know, and, and like the things in the quote that Amy wrote, I feel like in a sense, right. I feel like writing is kind of, for me is writing ahead of myself. Like I want to see the world in the way that I'm writing about it right now. And I hope that God's spirit, you know, <laughs> continues to work and right. really catches me up to um, the, the person on the page. Um, so I, yeah. yeah. So I think that's part mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. I could totally identify with that as a writer. <laughs> How, you know, Pierce, one thing I'm thinking of, and, and I hope that the question makes sense, but, you know, as, as, um, as Reformed Protestants, we have a category for ordinary means of grace, and we have a category for um, mm-hmm. understanding the, um, the sure. elements of, of the sacraments, water for baptism, bread and the cup for, um, for the Lord's Supper as, as you know, sacramental. There's, there's, by God's own design, there's a sacred mystery when we come together and, and receive those as gifts from Him. How, how do you differentiate um, the, 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 the sacramental nature of, of water and baptism and bread and wine and in, in communion from, uh, from what you're talking about, just in terms of how you observe, um, the ordinary quote, ordinary things in creation and how, how God shows us things about himself through those things, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I do think, um, I think that, um, 
there is a sense of, you know, of hierarchy to those things. You know, the, mm-hmm. the sanctity of these ordinary things is not the same as, you know, the kind of sacramental um, sanctity that we have mm-hmm. in the elements. And I think a key difference between those two things, and this is something that, that Bern Poitras helped me understand, is, um, you know, I use language as a kind of metaphor to talk about the nature of the world. But Vern would always remind me, you know, well, there, make sure that you maintain that clear distinction between, you know, natural revelation, you know, the world out there, but the verbal nature yeah. of special revelation in, mm-hmm. in a more literal sense. Yeah. Yeah, so when you talk about the, the sacraments, that's, you know, th- those are verbally um, delivered and right. uh, partaken of by people according to God's special revelation in scripture. Right. And so in that sense, that the ordinary... Um, that I'm that I'm talking about is is in a sense verbal, you know, in the Psalm 19 sense that that everything you know ha- is a sense which it speaks about God. But but there is a very clear distinction between the nonverbal mm-hmm. natural world and the verbal revelation of God, and I think that yeah. has to be maintained even even amidst the yeah. um, the imaginings and you know, exploration that, that we sure. on. So. Yeah, yeah, good. How do you handle the the darkness of creation, Piers? Uh, not creation as creation, but creation as fallen creation. I mean, that's the big the big watershed for for Protestants in many ways. And yeah, there is general revelation, but the world is fallen. Our minds are mm-hmm. darkened. Uh, yeah. How does one find God in in the suffering of a small child, for mm-hmm. example? To use an extreme an extreme example. Yeah, that is um, that is a really tough question. I think that in the in my thoughts about darkness, you know, and I mentioned a real a, you know Rainer Maria Rilke poem in that chapter, but yeah, I used to I used to look at the darkness before the fall as as more of an arena for creation. We 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 tend to look at darkness as you know as just patently evil now, but. I think before creation, there's nothing in the biblical account that suggests that the darkness itself is evil. But after the fall, you get you know tons of, of biblical references to darkness as a metaphor, you know, or analogy for evil and wickedness. And um, I think that you know to look at at those things correctly. Again, I, you have to use uh, the light of Scripture to to kind of censor anything that you might say. Um, you know, so when you have something that is really dark, um, how can you look at that through through the lens of Scripture and see God revealing Himself in it? And and those are some of the hardest questions to answer. You know, for for us, it's very personal because our oh, no. our five year old uh, last year had a, a little girl in his five year old class that um, that died very suddenly of of. Um, um, poisoning from from something that she had eaten. Um, it was it was a very unexpected thing, and it's really kind of struck our family hard um, in terms of our kids now always talking about dying and, and you know what happens you know when people die and um, you know and I did try to write something in response to the whole event and it and it was such a hard thing to be encouraging in the midst of something that bleak um, and I think that. You know, the only thing that you can get out of it, and I, and I don't know how much comfort this is to people who, who've actually dealt with it, but the only thing you can get out of it is um, that, you know, you, you do, we do have assumptions about what, what is good and what we're after, 
in life. And I do think that most of us, you know, when we're honest, those assumptions about what we want to get out of life are, are primarily earthly. And so we have to, we have to be constantly um, reminded in different ways of, you know, what is it that you get to keep forever? You know, you, you get a relationship with God. That is the only thing that, you know, that will last forever for you. And so this, this little girl's passing was a really painful reminder of the brevity of life and the fact that we, we all kind of go on assuming, well, yeah, of course, you know, five-year-old kids don't die. You know, we, we die at the age of 90 after we've retired. And, you know, you, you just have these assumptions about how life is going to go and, and built into those assumptions, I think, are, are hidden these values, your deepest values. And so I feel like, yeah, you know, you can, you can look through scripture and see promises and encouragements that say, hey, this is, this is what your, your takeaway is going to be from this situation in some sense, but it's going to be a really bitter pill to swallow. Uh, and it might just serve the purpose of showing you how far away from being heavenly minded uh, you are. And um, in that sense, I think it's, it's a very painful experience to try to look through scripture to see what, you know, what um, good things are coming from a dark event like that. But it's necessary as a reminder of, you know, what are we really about um, as human beings made in God's image? Uh, what's our ultimate passion? and um yeah you know standard mm -hmm. for happiness and things like that mm -hmm. i don't know if that helps but that's the, the thanks ps that's a, a nuanced answer it's good okay so what um i think this is a good transition then into what your next project is what are you working on now uh the next book i'm working on is uh, tentatively called um, struck down but not destroyed living faithfully with an anxiety disorder um, so i've dealt with a, an anxiety disorder for over 12 years um, and I've gathered thoughts and reflecting uh, biblically on what it means and how I can deal with this and in a way that honors Christ and helps me conform to his image and um, in a very practical sense. So I'm mm -hmm. hoping that that will, will serve not just, you know, people who deal with anxiety in general, which is, you know, everyone, but people who really deal with severe anxiety right. and, and panic attacks and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, how can you, interpret that in the context of your faith because you, you have to interpret whatever happens to you in, in a certain context so my context of course is is the story of scripture so it's looking right. at that in the context of scripture yeah i'm looking forward to that one coming out too after reading this book um which i really thank you for writing finding god in the ordinary uh, pierce taylor hibbs thanks thanks for being on to talk to us about it today pierce i am I don't know who your audience, like target audience, wasn't narrowly in mind when writing a book. I know a lot of times authors, are, oh, you know, you want everybody to read it. Right. right. Um, but there, you know, there is this target audience that we need to hit. And one thing I was just thinking is how how broadly this does cover because I feel like I could give my thirteen year old this book. It is written so well. Um, Thank it, you. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's written in a way that, um, like I said, the, the theology, it's a mature book. It's not written for kids by any means, and it's, but it's so interesting that I feel like my 13-year-old would, you know, be capturing some great theology while reading this book. Well, thank you very much. For, that means a lot to me. I think it's, it's for my end, it's, 
It's probably the only book that I've written so far that my mother might buy, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm, I am going to give it, um, I'm looking forward to giving um, this to my daughter, who is a sophomore at college right now, because I really feel like she's going to love a little book like this for her devotions in the morning. She's always looking for, you know, something accessible for her. But it's very hard to find books. Um, so often books written for that age group are just not well written they're cheesy and um the theology is very light and i mean like i said i'm 43 years old and i read this book with much much delight <laughs> not i wasn't powering women in 1962 you look, you look 50 um that's 43 but uh i mean i read this book with you know my, so i'm not saying this is marketed for younger people but i'm just saying that so many people can read this book and i think that's a, a real gem yeah. That was the, the hope that it, that it would be a, for a wider audience. And one of the people I had comment on it said, oh, yeah, I just got to the end and I was kind of disappointed that there wasn't another chapter. And I, I said, well, yeah, so you know, that, that gives me more of a reason to work on a second volume. And I feel like it's, you know, it's more of a training, mm -hmm. like yeah, I said, would more be of great. a training. And I feel like I have to keep doing it to, to help myself. So training exercise yeah, we'll see, yeah. See just in how we think yeah well thanks for writing it thanks for coming on to talk to us about it and thanks for having me, yeah. yeah and i do i recommend all the listeners to buy finding god in the ordinary it's published by Whitfinstock. and um you can also cruise on over to our website uh, mortificationofspin.org and you can try to win a copy we're giving away a few copies and we would love for you to enter into that i was just at a conference speaking where a woman told me she won a copy of my book uh -huh. through our podcast. And I just works. thought, oh, a real winner. See, they're there. They're <laughs> out there. So, and while you're over there, um, there's another very ordinary thing on our website. It's the mm -hmm. donation button. <laughs> and uh, as ordinary as it is, it does a lot to help support our podcast. So I encourage you to do that as well. Maybe Piers could write a little essay on the, the finding on God the in the ordinariness of our donation. <laughs> in the donation button. <laughs> That'd be great. We would love, we would publish that on the blog. <laughs> <laughs> and so thanks for listening to us today. And hey, we will catch you on the flip side next week. Starry, starry night. Paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day with eyes that know the darkness in my soul. Shadows on the hills. Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and the winter chills In colors on the snowy linen land Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... We tend to think of, well, surely the, the way we're saved is by, by faith, by conscious faith in Christ, and certainly that's true. But your typical Christian universalist would argue that the conscious 
faith in Christ in an explicit sense is not necessary. That the reason why everybody gets to heaven is the work of Christ, whether they understand it or whether they care to acknowledge it in yeah. shape or form. So it's not simply a case of, well, all religions lead to God. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Fallen, pregnant. It's a weird way of describing it. It's, do you not say that in America? If you've fallen pregnant, caught a cold or caught the flu or something. Is that, is that, a, is that a, an American? Is that a Britishism? Fallen yeah, I pregnant? guess so. That's a Britishism, but that's okay. That's that's one of the things that makes us so endearing. Okay, maybe I should have said if you find yourself, you know, inadvertently up the junction. <laughs> that's, that's another. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm glad you didn't go for that's that. That's a new one. That's a new one. <laughs> I'm going to use that from the pulpit. I'm use that from the pulpit. You know, we're having a Good baby shower. We're having a baby shower for the Smiths. Uh, Mrs. Smith finds herself up the junction. <laughs> uh, so, I think modification of spin should go YouTube. Yeah, we should just go YouTube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We should start driving around in a taxi, doing karaoke. Yes. Theology. Yes. I'll be the driver. Yes. I think it should be a VW bus. Uh, uh, we need a tour bus. We do need a tour bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Bob will uh, write that oh, yes, budget. Yes. Mm-hmm. We need somewhere for all our hangers on as well. Uh, sort of dodgy Las Vegas types. Mm-hmm. To sort of mm-hmm. Or the uh, the Oscar Mayer Wiener. The Oscar Mayer Wiener movie. Yeah. <laughs>